0: Hello, and welcome to episode nine of School Nutrition Dietitian. This is a really exciting episode. Today, I have Dale Hayes on the show. If you've been a dietitian for a while, or if you've been in school nutrition for a while, you are already familiar with her work. What's really exciting about this show is she gives us a look into how she started out building her skill set in traditional media and how that later grew into her becoming basically the go-to person for social media, when it comes to communicating nutrition messaging clearly, and when it comes to advocating for the school nutrition program. This episode, we discuss where we are as an industry, and how we can improve as individual districts and individual professionals when it comes to leveraging social media to break down negative stereotypes about school meals. And maybe I'm a little biased, but one of my favorite parts of the show is when Dale dispels the myth that millennials are the absolute worst. So
1: please stay tuned school nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind now you're ready for your academics focus time to handle business breakfast you don't want to miss it help your body to replenish clean food clear mind that is the vision tune in to the school nutrition dietitian
0: I I have been a a consultant for a very long time. Okay, that's awesome. Well, maybe we can start right there. There are so many people who are interested in working for themselves or doing something more entrepreneurial where they can reach more people, but a lot of people are afraid to do that, even though now with all the technology that we have to reach a wide audience from home or from anywhere it's a great time to do it. How did you find yourself doing so much freelancing back in the 90s? Were you always interested in working for yourself or how did that come about? In
2: 1982, I moved from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Billings, Montana. And in Cambridge, I have been working for the Neighborhood Health Centers associated with Cambridge Hospital, which was one of the original pilot WIC programs in the country. So uh, it had been a wonderful job to have as a nutritionist. Uh, I did work from nine to five. I had a, a boss, a wonderful boss. But um, then I moved to Montana. And the situation in Montana, in terms of jobs, was very different. Mm. In other words, in terms of jobs available in nutrition or dietetics, there were primarily um, jobs at the two local hospitals. At that point, I uh, was just ready to take to sit for the um, exam to be an RD. I had. Completed a master's in public health, and through my work at the WIC Program in Massachusetts, I had completed um, a couple of years of experience. At that point, there existed a path to uh, an RD, which no longer exists, but that was a internship. Uh, excuse me, a master's degree plus six months experience. So I did not do an uh, internship, uh, and I sat for the exam when I moved to Montana. So then I was living in Billings, Montana, not really knowing the situation very well. I had a two-year-old child. I had an RD, and there really weren't any positions open, especially any positions that I might have been qualified for. So I went into business for myself. It was as simple as that.
0: Wow. That, that's really brave. I would think that would require... A lot of resilience, since people maybe weren't familiar with the concept at the time, or were people used to working with RDS on a part-time basis, or for specific projects, or did you pretty much have to develop that path for yourself?
2: I pretty much had to develop that path for myself. There were uh, there was another dietitian in town. Actually, she came as a quote friend referral from uh, somebody I knew back in Massachusetts. And she had had sort of more traditional training than I had had, and she started to do some consulting for nursing homes. I think that was basically the only type of consulting that people uh, in Montana were familiar with at that point. However, I felt pretty comfortable with the idea of doing individual counseling Because in the Cambridge Neighborhood Health Centers where I had worked, I'd had the opportunity to do quite a bit of counseling outside of um, the WIC program, so with uh, clients and patients of the Neighborhood Health Centers. At that point, uh, my husband was also a clinical psychologist, and he was starting to make connections in the community uh, the mental health community, and uh, there seemed to be a need for people to work with folks with eating disorders. So I took some uh, additional workshop training in terms of eating disorders. Um, put to use some of the counseling that I already done uh, that I had already done, and then in the beginning, that was my basic um, clientele, if you will. Um, very shortly, though, I met people and networks, and began to get some other kinds of work. Uh, I remember that uh, one of the first jobs that somebody offered me was to come give a class for the railroad workers, for the Burlington Northern Railroad. Um, pretty much, I just said yes. Yes led me to interesting opportunities in sort of what we would now call worksite wellness. They led me to opportunities in doing some PR for work for the local hospital, like doing grocery store tours, and uh, I also immediately got involved with the Montana Dietetic Association. I have to say that I think from the beginning of my career through and this very day, um, I have made a lot of the connections that I have and have have taken advantage of opportunities uh, through my volunteer work with Dietetic Association.
0: And how, it seems like not everyone has the same understanding of what the value of the Dietetic Association is. How was it being presented then, just as if you're an RD, if you're being a responsible professional, you should be part of your professional organization? Or were they stressing networking benefits? How was it being presented?
2: I think at that point, it it was very much of, uh, it is your responsibility as a professional to belong to a professional organization. And then if you're going to belong to that association, then to be active. Honestly, the other, th- the other thing is that then and now, there are only a couple of hundred dietitians in Montana. So immediately the opportunities to uh, volunteer, uh, to I think the first thing I did was work on a newsletter. Um, but there, there really is a sense of um, th- that there. If, if we want to have a functional association and if we want to get done some of the things that we want, then we all have to work together on those. I, right. There are two, op- two opportunities that actually happened in the 80s, which I think had a great deal of influence on my career and on dietitians in, in Montana. And one was that in, I believe it was 1985, I was the among the crop of the first media reps uh, that were trained by then the... Uh, American Dietetic Association, so that the ADA established a spokesperson um, program, and there were national spokespeople, but they also trained one person from every state, or maybe two if you were a big state, so I got to be the first media rep. For the state of Montana, which meant I got to go to a meeting in New Orleans. I went through some pretty mm, arduous media training, but immediately started to come back and do interviews and, again, you know, network and make opportunities. So that was the, the uh, first uh, big thing that happened. The second was that in 1987, Montana dietitians were among the first to get licensure. So that means, man to that, again, very small state, uh, well, actually big state, but very few dietitians, is that I immediately got involved with uh, sort of policy and uh, networking around licensure, which we received in
0: 1987. Oh, wow. I did not realize any of that. I really should know more about the progression of dietetics in this country, but it is a relatively early field. I already understood that food science in general is kind of young and it sounds like you are on the cutting edge of a lot as far as media goes. What forms of media were they using at the time? Was it just print and TV and when did the internet become part of marketing nutrition, basically evidence based nutrition marketing and getting the, our messaging out there?
2: Well, when I first started, the interwebs did not exist. <laughs> uh, there were not dinosaurs roaming the earth, uh, despite uh, uh, some reports to the contrary. <laughs> The first things that I started doing really were very traditional media. Um, in other words, TV. Um, I very soon after I had my media training. Um, before too long, I was writing a regular column for the newspaper, and uh, also did a fair amount of uh, radio interviews as well. Radio was and and is still popular. Um, out in the West, especially agricultural radio. Uh, That's what farmers and ranchers listen to when they're uh, out on the range, although probably now they listen to podcasts. Hmm. So a lot of my early work was um, completely involved with what we would consider to be traditional media. I can't cite the date when I started working online. Um, I do remember some ancient computers along the way. Um, But I do know that I was the first, that myself and one other dietitian were the first people to request a computer to be online at uh, FENCI. So at a national Ah. ADA meeting, we were the first people, it must have been somewhere in the 90s, we wanted to do a presentation and actually show people websites. And it caused great consternation that we wanted to go online. Um,
0: <laughs> I was going to I ask was- that because you seem like you must be an early adopter. Because even now, it seems like you're the fir- you're clearly an influencer when it comes to nutrition. And I don't really see anyone else standing out the way that you do when it comes to using technology to support school nutrition in particular. So were you always an early adopter? You just like technology or you just a flexible person? I
2: think some of all of the above. I like technology. I like using technology and it just seemed immediately that there were so many benefits to uh, communicating that way. I, I suppose I have been an early adopter, um, but uh the I did when I was, so then in mid 90s, I got elected to the, still then the ABA um, board of directors. And in my position, um, as a director at large, I chaired a technology task force. So the first time that um, people that people at the dietitians at the academy level were beginning to think about, using various forms of techno- technological communications, um, you know, I was able to be on the ground floor and to meet some of those people. I was actually thinking about it the other day because I was looking for other early adopters. I was mm-hmm. looking for people who think out- thought outside of the box. And I remember that I kept saying I wanted a dietician with a ring in their nose. And, yeah. <laughs> and really what what I meant by that was my daughter had just gotten, her, you know, a piercing. She had just gotten her nose pierced. And I wanted somebody of an age and an interest um, to, you know, to bring that, that, quote, useful perspective to talking about technology because you don't need a bunch of old fuddy-duddies talking about technology and I think some of that is still very much my my perspective. I, I think sometimes our profession has been slow to adopt mm-hmm. technology, and that is to our detriment since that's the way that everybody's communicating. Um, the right. school part of it was just, you know, I, I had a gradual shift into school nutrition. Again, um, I... I don't. I can't. Uh, I don't have that uh, timeline solidified in my brain. But I got involved in school nutrition because my daughter com- came home and complained about school lunch. Um, my son had been eating it for three years and never said a word. But uh, my daughter started to complain, and so I went in and said, "What's going on? You know, what's happening? What is what is school lunch like in Billings, Montana?" I think I took a very different tack. Than some other folks at that time, and that was really looking for ways to work with people, on um, in the profession as opposed to, you know, being an activist or an advocate. Right. So I joined, I joined SNA. I got to know a lot about it. I started doing some training um, in the state of Montana, and um, then in might have been 1990 or very close to that, I did a workshop for Team Nutrition in Washington, D.C., and at that point, they had um, people from all over the country, state-level people who were working with, uh, I think it was the NET program at that point. But what it did is it got me introduced to uh, a whole lot of um, really top-notch, school nutrition people and some of those people are still my friends and many of them have retired now but some of them I'm still working with so
0: how did that opportunity come to you was that something you pursued or because of all of your work with the academy you sit out and someone reached out to you
2: Honestly, it was because somebody reached out to me. Mm-hmm. my My career has I, my career path has not been a a well planned. Uh, you know, this is where I want to be at this point. I, I admire people who have uh, those sorts of visions. Mine has been much more about serendipity and saying yes. Right. <laughs> um, I really, I really think that it is. Um, you know, from when somebody asked me to go talk to guys who work on the railroad about nutrition, when somebody asked me to come to Washington, D.C. And and at that point for uh, USDA, I was talking about uh, teamwork and, um, you know, helping people realize the benefits of, of teamwork in terms of school nutrition. But then I happened to meet people and to be on um, task committees, all those kinds of things, so that as new, you know, wellness requirements for wellness committees came in, first of all, because that was before Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, it was just being well-positioned um, and and being open to and excited about working with a lot of different people. I mean, that really has been... Um, the story of my of my career. So, yeah, it's great to have a, a plan and a mar- you know marketing plan, a business plan, know where you want to go. But I also think it's really important to be open to serendipity and opportunities that present themselves to you. Yeah,
0: that is excellent professional advice that you don't hear often. There's so much stress on knowing where you want to go, but there's so many variables and so many things you can't control in life. It sounds like it might also be a good idea to open yourself up to opportunities and being as prepared as possible. And like you said, positioning yourself well, because life is full of surprises. How do you stay fresh with technology? Because like you said, we have this ongoing issue with maybe being surrounded by slow adopters? Or how do you stay connected to young people since we all age so quickly, we just can't seem to keep young people around us because, you know, no one stays young forever. So what have you been doing to keep up?
2: I think one of the most important things I've done is ask my children for advice. Um, uh, I'm serious about that you know since they were especially well my son definitely and my daughter when she was younger more so were early adopters and you know wanted not, not in a um, not in an annoying way I mean you know I'm, re- I'm really glad they didn't there weren't smartphones when they were teenagers um, but but we always had computers and uh, we had one of those first weirdly shaped Apple things that came in the Mac things that came in the bright colors and then really quickly went from that to having a laptop so I was always looking for providing my kids with that with my children with those opportunities and even today I mean I, I'm trying to decide when to you know bump up from my iPhone 7 to excuse me iPhone 8 to Uh, you know, to a 10 or, you know, 11. And so I have conversations with my son about, so, you know, what's kind of the optimal timing and price points and all those kinds of things. So my children are one significant influence on my uh, adoption of technology. However, I just saw something the other day that said if you're over 40 – and I am well over 40, you need to have a mentor who's under 30. So I I think that's a really interesting concept because I believe in general when we've thought about mentor and mentee, we've always pictured the mentor as the older, more experienced person. But in fact, that what's really important is to have mentors who are, Younger, not only for the technology issue, but for how they um, approach the world, how their their world view, whether it be dietetics or school nutrition, how that looks to them is very different than how it looks to me. So right. I think staying in touch with younger people like yourself, um, but also just just finding ways, and again, a professional association. It's such a convenient way to do that because there are, you know, members of of either the academy or SNA along the whole age span, and we should be looking not just to folks who might mentor us who are older, but who are younger.
0: That makes so much sense, and I, it's funny, I've never heard anything like that anywhere else, because I constantly hear at trainings that millennials are such a nightmare to work with. It really just, it's always framed like people are just tolerating us, (laughs) not that they're getting anything out of the interaction. Whereas in my office, even though they give us a hard time about being younger, and I'm an old millennial, so I don't know when it's going to stop, but they really do exchange things that only they could know from having done the job for so long and understanding the history of the program and the history of the community that we live in but they also take advantage of the knowledge that we have just you know because of being digital natives I'm not really a digital native but I'm close so it's interesting that people are finally putting that into words I wonder how long it'll take for for that to spread it may never spread I don't know
2: well, I, I just think it, to me, the strength of almost anything in our world comes from embracing diversity. Yes. and And making sure that diversity is included. and And I absolutely believe in diversity related to culture and ethnicity demographics, all those kinds of things. I mean, that that's sort of the traditional views of diversity. But age is the same thing. I right. mean, age is, is the diversity uh, that we need to, to embrace, to include, to explore. And it seems to me that if we, you know, think it's only top down and, uh, or even think it's bottom up, you know, young up, I mean, neither one of those provides the benefits that um looking at the different kinds of wisdom and expertise that come from a variety of ages. Right. Several people have told me that perhaps I'm a millennial I'm just a really old millennial <laughs> or I was millennial before millennial was. But I don't I don't find millennials difficult at all. I think they're they're fascinating, they have so much to offer. And besides that, millennials are the parents of customers in school nutrition. So you better understand the parents if you want their kids to be your customer.
0: Yeah. And if you hold any group of people in contempt in your personal life, It always comes across, no matter how much you try and suppress it, or no matter how much you convince yourself that you know how to behave in certain contexts. How you really feel, it kind of just seeps out of your pores. So if you don't like your millennial coworkers strictly because you just have decided you can't gel with the values of the whole generation... I'm sure it comes across when you interact with the parents as as well. And it's just funny to me because all the complaints that people have, I was watching something on PBS where they played a clip of somebody describing a baby boomer. I can't even remember how old, what the generation was right before the baby boomers, but all of their complaints sound exactly like what baby boomers say about Gen Xers and... Millennials. So people always do that. And it's just, it's not helpful. Like you said, it doesn't strengthen your organizations to close yourself off to age diversity. I
2: have told people for years, and I, I think it's still pretty valid, that if you don't understand something about technology, or you don't understand something about social media, or you don't understand... What Reddit is, or you, you know, whatever it is, just find a teenager and have them help you understand it. It's probably better if they're not your teenager. You know, if they, if they're uh, uh, a nephew or, uh, or you know, a random teenager in the neighborhood, but they're the ones who can. Uh, especially now who've been digital natives, who were born digitally. Um, You can take advantage, as long as you are open and listening, you can take advantage of what they know really well and and put it to work for you. I, I think if we create barriers because of age or because of color or because of cultural background, it doesn't serve us in any way, and in fact, it does us harm. The things that in this society that seem so, that, that are good and that are working well, it seems to me, are real mashups. They're mashups right. of, again, cultural background, um, uh, but they're mashups of ages, too. I mean, I, I think that we can learn so much across generations and And things that have a lot of technology and and things that don't have a lot of
0: technology.
2: So, you know, being open to those possibilities really feels like the right thing to me.
0: Right. Absolutely. So how do we amplify our voices as evidence-based practitioners and as public health advocates? We know there's a lot of conflicting nutrition messaging out there. How do we make sure science is in the forefront?
2: I think this is a critically important issue in public health right now. I uh, recently attended a committee meeting of the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, and there was testimony from uh, the broad spectrum of professionals and individuals, but it also was like this huge disconnect between actual science-based information and people's personal philosophies and what they thought um, Americans should be eating. I think in terms of school nutrition professionals, it's very important to emphasize the fact that school meals are planned based on science uh, information. And although you know, we know that science is always gradually evolving, what we're working with is something that is based in facts not in people's personal preferences or philosophies about eating. I respect those, but those aren't the kinds of information that we
0: should be basing feeding
2: programs for children
0: on. That absolutely makes sense, because if we're just using anecdotal information or things that are based in one person's experience, there's no way to know whether or not that could be applied to the general population, which is the difference between evidence-based nutrition and everything else that's out there. It can actually be applied to the general population and benefit the general population.
2: Absolutely. I do think we need to provide options. For example, um, a vegetarian diet is an option um, that we should make available to students in schools who prefer to, whose families uh, prefer that as an eating style. But just because that's a, a food preference or a philosophy for some families doesn't mean that we should apply it to
0: everybody. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So we know you're an expert in helping organizations market themselves or districts or entire nutrition departments. Are there similarities between how you promote an organization and personal branding or how we promote ourselves as professionals?
2: I think the real key to whether you're branding yourself as a professional or Whether you're branding, say, a school district or a nutrition program, the key to branding all of those is to be very clear about several things. The first thing is to be really clear who your audience is. Who are you trying to reach? If you try to reach too many audiences, sometimes the messaging of that brand is not so clear. I always suggest that when people are working on their branding, whether it's a school district or a person, is you don't just create that uh, vacuum, create your brand in a vacuum. You ask your audience, you ask your customers, you ask the people who you're working with, um, what uh, whether your brand means something to them. So, if I'm talking about school meals that rock, I need to make certain that. The people who I'm speaking to, and in fact, I have a couple of different audiences, but that they understand what that means, that they don't think I'm talking about rock music, that they understand that I'm talking about excellence in school meals. So I think it's really important, whatever you're doing, to be clear on the audience and to engage your audience when you're
0: creating your brand. So how did you do your research before you landed on School Meals Rock?
2: Well, actually, uh, I started out uh, with some colleagues who were working in the area of School Meals. And, you know, I said, I really want to create a brand. And and I was specifically going to uh, do that in the social media space. I was honestly upset about some of the other conversations that were going on that really portrayed negative images of school meals. So I wanted something that really um, was in uh, direct uh, opposition to that, that really positioned a positive place for school meals. So I started out with colleagues who I knew personally, and I said, what does this mean to you? Um, And we discussed what school meals at Ross means. And then I expanded that out to uh, some uh, of a very brief, informal survey to several other people, uh, several other programs around the country who were working in school meals. And I said, what does this mean to you? And how would you respond, um, you know, to a uh, Facebook page, for example, that was called School Meals That Rocks? I got a very positive response to that. People thought it was uh, a little bit edgy, but not too sassy. Um, and understood what exactly I was trying to get to. I first established the name and the brand and used it online for several years before I ever developed a logo. I think sometimes when branding themselves, people think you sort of have to do the whole package at the same time. Maybe you're at a place or your program is at a place where it's appropriate to get a name, a logo, a tagline to do all those things at once. In my case, it wasn't, and I waited for several years before I felt, like I, before I felt that I had an idea of what I wanted the visual for that brand to look like. And then I went to a, a graphic artist and had to work up some options and, again, went through back the process of um, sharing and getting uh, reactions to that.
0: Okay. So you have multiple audiences, you said. So did you have an idea about what kind of content you would be putting on the page around the same time that you were putting feelers out for how people understood the brand itself?
2: Yes. My goal at that point and and essentially my ongoing goal is to change the perception of school meals in the United States. Some days I feel like I've, uh, my job's done. <laughs> um, well, on a good day, when I'm scrolling through social media and I see so many wonderful examples of school meals and of logos for that matter, of names for programs, um, when I see that, I think, oh, okay, you know, I, I have uh, helped to change the perception. And then, of course, something happens, and I think, no, no, there's still a lot of, of work to be done here. Right. Um, so, so I, I'm I'm still willing to uh, do the work, but yes, I the content that I started with was really just for a very what was really for two audiences. One was for school people who work in school meals themselves. I wanted to know that them to know that they had a cheerleader that I understand the challenges and the obstacles that people work with every day. And I also am so aware of the incredible successes that people have had. So, I, you know, I, I wanted people in the biz, so to speak, to, uh, know, um, to know that they had a cheerleader and also that there were ways that they could successfully promote their own program. Beyond that, I wanted to just get out the information that, um, you know, that school meals aren't, aren't the negative, nasty things that is sometimes portrayed in the media. And I wanted my colleagues to know that who aren't in school nutrition. By colleagues, I mean other registered dietitians. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted, you know, basically um, the general public to know that. And just today, I had the opportunity to provide uh, a few sentences for a blog that one of our colleagues, that a registered dietitian is going to write for a national magazine. And when she first reached out, um, not to me, but she had a sort of general request, uh, she was looking for um, registered dietitian's ideas on what families could pack for meals you know, to take to school. And I said, that's a great thing to do. However, would you also be interested in a few sentences about why families should take a fresh look at school meals? And she said, oh, yeah, of course. And she said, oh, yeah, and I know that that's your wheelhouse, and I'd love to see what you wrote, So, uh, what you would put together. So I put a few sentences together and sent them off to her. So I think that um, the brand of school meals that rock has given me – a lot of opportunities to help change perceptions among my professional colleagues as well as uh, the general public.
0: And you have a massive reach in the dietetic community in areas where you would think people maybe have no exposure to food service and school nutrition because a lot of people do their food service rotations in a clinical setting, but it feels like pretty much everybody knows who you are. So how do you effectively reach two audiences at once? When we're trying to market our individual programs, we're usually trying to reach parents, children, employees that work within the department, and then employees in the district and stakeholders in general. Is that too many groups to attempt to market to? I don't think it's too
2: many groups to attempt to market to. I mean, I think you create an overall brand that you can use with all those markets. Then you may have different strategies to reach different people in different ways. In other words, the strategy that you might use to um, reach middle school students might be different than the administrators in your district. But if you – I mean, a brand, I think, is an overall umbrella under which you can or, or let let's let's turn that uh, metaphor on end, I think it's the foundation, and then on that you can build um, different strategies that that target a specific audience in a in a specific way, and I also think you can use it to um, market a specific program or event in a different way, in other words, once you once you have an overall brand, I'll just do School Meals That Rock so I don't focus on anybody's uh, district or program in particular. But under School Meals That Rock, I could talk about school breakfasts that rock. I could talk about school lunches that rock. I could talk about, um, you know, uh, snack programs that rock. So on that on that one brand and platform, I can... Um, I can do different programs and different events. And I can also use different strategies to reach different audiences. I've never really gone after, I mean, the, the, the work that I do and the platforms that I work on are not aimed at students themselves. They're really aimed at adults. Um, and, 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 However, even within adults, I talk differently sometimes, for example, when I want to reach administrators or when I want to reach educators versus, say, when I want to reach the families themselves, the folks who are making the decisions
0: about where a child eats. But you use one platform to reach multiple audiences? You don't dedicate, say, like Twitter to one audience and Facebook to another?
2: Not in my case. I think that... um, So a choice to dedicate a particular channel, a particular social media channel to one audience, I think is possible in my case, it's not necessary. In my case, I use those various channels to reach um, to basically to reach the same audience. I do think that I mean, you know you can you can pick up or or you know research who's using which um, platforms more often and see that different types of people, Um, tend to be there more often. One of the things that I've found really interesting, though, in in doing some research with a particular district is finding out that uh, even though students may not follow uh, a a Twitter account, for example, a a school lunch Twitter account, even though they may not be following that, um, they may go and take a look at it, Um, on an occasional basis when they're making decisions about what to eat. So I don't always think that numbers of followers or particular demographics of followers may may not give you a complete picture of who actually is paying attention to that social media.
0: Okay. And so in that same vein, do you use analytics to see what's going on with your Facebook accounts would you recommend that districts look at their analytics, or because of what you just said, are, are they not very useful?
2: I think they're they're one piece of information. Absolutely, I go and I look at my analytics and uh, to help figure out you know who who is following me, best times of day, best days of the week, you know when I'm uh, when I'm getting the kind of pickup. Um, and engagement uh, that I want. On the other hand, I think all of those, uh, all of the metrics that are being used by social media are so variable that Mm. you you can only, uh, by variable I mean that they change over time and that we don't always know how they've changed. So use the analytics, yes, but also um, get a sense of from your own work of of what things um, work what topics work best, what formats work best, a poll versus just a picture. Um, you know, get get a sense of that and um and keep your finger on the pulse of uh, of how things are changing in social post- in your social media engagement.
0: What resources do you recommend for us learning how to use platforms we're already on to their fullest extent or keeping up with the changes? So I know most of us, everybody knows how to use Facebook, but not everybody knows how to post a poll, for example. Where should we go to learn more?
2: I think everybody should become very familiar with Help. I'm actually serious. I think one of the things that people do is they, they don't take advantage of what the platform itself has available for you. For example, if I see somebody doing something cool on Facebook or having a poll, and I'm wondering how are they doing that? I go to Facebook to the help center and I say, help, Uh, I mean, I don't say help. I say, how do I make a poll? How do I utilize a poll? How can I post a poll on Twitter? Uh, I think that's a very effective way is to use the platform itself. I mean, they've, they've developed a lot of, of answers to those questions. And then honestly, I go out and Google what my question is. um, And I follow a few blogs, probably on a regular basis, but for my work, I find it more effective to to just ask a question, you know, Google a question and see what comes up in terms of um, of answers. That That's my style, which is which is more sort of organic and bonding to when I have a question. Okay. Um, how I like to, to learn is when I need to know the answer to something. So then I'll go out and search it and probably find an example from two or three different blogs. For example, one of the things I've been looking at now, recently is the different ways that people are using video. I think it's become really clear, and and I think most people on social media would agree that um, that video is is the name of the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a video is worth a thousand pictures. Um, so, beginning to think about how people are using video, what what length video do you want to use? What about uh, uh, user-created content? Um, you know, students uh, creating, for example, um, some video content. I just go out and I search on those topics, and I read what a variety of people are saying about it. Yeah.
0: Okay, that's a good tip. And I know you were giving tips about how to use Google more effectively at Precon, and we had technical issues and I had technical issues at my table. So I wasn't able to do all the exercises in real time, but I've been working my way through them. So even though I use Google literally every day, I don't even know how many times a day some of those search functions I didn't realize were applicable in Google cuz some of that I remember from university Libraries, like those search conventions, I didn't realize those same rules were applicable in Google.
2: That, that whole thing is a really good example. Say your question is, "How do I use Google more effectively? How do I? Um, what search terms can make my searches more effectively?" Like, that's the kind of thing that I search on, and then and find two or three different sources for things. And then pick the way or the style or the presentation um, that's most that teaches me the best. I mean, I guess I think that one of the advantages that we have today is that we can really individualize our learning. Not everybody has to learn in exactly the same way. And, you know, there, there are plenty of great blogs out there. I mean, a lot of the platforms have their own blog, Hootsuite. Provides a lot of information about how to use um, social media effectively. Browse is another blog that I've followed. So I follow them because I find them useful. Um, They just had a a recent piece about uh, what are fake influencers uh, and how can you spot them. Uh, Mm. They've had some effective. They've had some effective things on creating social media videos, that kind of thing. It's how I learn. And I'm not sure it's it's the best way for everybody to learn. But when I need to know something, I go out and search for what I need to know. And I think that's a really positive way, at least for me, to approach learning about these things.
0: Mm. Okay, perfect. That's really insightful. And I'm going to post all those resources so it's easy for people to find. So you've done so much getting us to where we need to be as far as changing the public perception of the National School Lunch Program. Like you said, sometimes you feel like your job is done. But of course, we have off days. So there's plenty more work that we could be doing. What do you think we are doing well as an entire field? And where are there opportunities for growth that you can see?
2: I think that the real issue at this point is is the numbers. Game. In other words, I think a lot of the people who are on social media regularly, yourself, some of the other prominent districts, they're doing a great job, and they're and they're doing a great job within their communities. But I think there is, I don't think we've reached the tipping point in terms of the numbers of districts that are actively, promoting um, the great things they're doing on social media. You know, I, I think that the people who are on social media are doing a great job. I just think we need more people to do that. And on the days when I think my job is done is when I notice that there are three or four more districts on Twitter or that there are more districts on Instagram. That, that really makes me happy, but I think we don't have the numbers yet. The other thing is, I think that that we could do a better job of coordinating school nutrition, school meals promotions on social media with the districts themselves. So, in in many cases, the district has been using social media. Um, for a longer time, really has a very uh, high level of engagement in terms of uh, families is really using that as a primary way to reach out to families in their district. And then there's the social media account for the school nutrition program, but it seems like an entirely separate thing. Mm. I think those work the best when the school district and the school nutrition program are really coordinating, are reinforcing, are amplifying the messages. And quite frankly, when when school districts are are integrating messaging about school meals into their promotional, their marketing, their activities, that's when people will begin to see school nutrition as essential to the education process.
0: Uh, that's an excellent point. I I could see making an effort in our district to see if we could basically start working toward that. Because right now we are pretty separate. We'll occasionally get a uh, a repost, but yeah, we appear to be two separate entities.
2: That's not an uncommon situation. But when you see districts beginning to not just repost, but to post something about their school nutrition program. Um, I just happened to have an example which came across my uh, screen today from Gwinnett County in in Georgia. And their their Twitter account for their district is huge. Uh, but They have um, some enormous number of followers and an enormous number of followers on Facebook. as well but what they were doing was they were posting some pictures of the from the school nutrition program and Gwinnett Cafe has branded itself as Cafe Gwinnett and then I happened to see that Gwinnett Gould wasn't just reposting something but it was really talking about what was going on in the school nutrition program and how important that was to education and posting that as a separate post and that I think is really effective.
0: And they look like they have a lot of engagement as well, not just a lot of followers. And I see that you have that too with School Meals That Rock. What does it take to get an engaged audience, not just grow your numbers?
2: Pay attention to your audience. Um, Pay attention to things that work and things that don't work. I'm rarely surprised when a post is really engaging because I've been watching carefully And I haven't been just thinking about what it is that I want to post. I've been thinking about what it is that people want to read and know about. What are people curious about? What are things that are trending? So that I'm not just posting what I think is important or what I want people to pay attention to. I'm thinking about it from their viewpoint and sometimes asking. I mean, one of the things that we've been doing on tips for School Meals at Rock is really asking people um, their opinions and um, what they're doing. And sometimes it's formal, like it's a poll. Um, I think polls can be very effective because people like to express their opinions. Um, But over the summer, we also just did a feature on the weekend called hashtag weekend wondering. We're wondering what you're thinking about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And that, I think, especially if you do it regularly and that people are really responsive to that. I think that really engages folks. It engages them beyond just clicking That they, you know, like something or
0: love something, but, uh, you know, really asking. Yeah. Okay. That's a good tip. These sound obvious and yet (laughs) I don't necessarily think that they are. I guess we forget the rules of communication when we go into a different platform. But this is basically what it takes to create relationships in real life. The same rules apply. It's just a matter of finding a way to get that communication to go back and forth. That's how you keep your audience. Now, if you are in a district and, of course, you're assigned to other duties, would you recommend that districts assign multiple people to make sure that their site is responsive And if so, how do you make it clear what the voice of your department is supposed to be so that everyone can kind of write in the same voice?
2: I think that's a really interesting question and dilemma. I do think it's very helpful to spread the responsibilities a little bit to not make, you know, it's an enormous job to take on to create a really effective social media presence for anybody, for any brand, child nutrition or otherwise. I mean, I realize that I have uh, a lot, uh, I have a luxury and that that sort of is my job and that is what I do. So I have a lot of time to think about it and focus on it and that your average um, child nutrition program director or registered dietitian rarely has that as a significant job description. I mean, I think there are a few people um, who have or who actually have that as their responsibility, and a few people who love to do it, so it doesn't feel like their job. But I think um, if you don't have that situation, that actually uh, creating a social media presence can also be a really good way to build leadership within a department. So say you've got a director and you have you know a number of supervisors or, manager type level people who are working in a, in, a, uh, in a program that, you know, maybe one manager, one supervisor, one person can take responsibility for a platform, um, like posting on Instagram or something like that. I think, um, and often some of the younger people have, are, are much more intuitive about working with social media than some people, you can grow leadership by assigning those responsibilities to different people. And how do you how do you keep a coherent brand or image? I, I think you do it like you do anything else. You um, decide on on uh, what the what the key messages are. Um, you build a social media calendar so you know what you're posting about, and then you. Um, uh, you know, make sure that you're staying on top of of people following, you know, the, the policies, um, the procedures and the calendar. But I think when you do that effectively, you can really establish a cohesive social media presence that doesn't have to be done all by one person.
0: So for people who've never tried to develop a social media strategy before, would that meeting be where you... Discuss the strategies for your different target audiences and when you want to address them and with what kind of content.
2: I think that establishing a strong social media presence in a school nutrition program is like anything else that you might do in that program. It's like menu planning, it is like establishing a training schedule. You get the folks who are involved in the issue together. You brainstorm, you have a conversation, um, you make some, uh, you prioritize some decisions about how you're going to do things. And then you make assignments and you get them done. And I think that applies whether you're making some menu changes, that applies whether you're training people how to cook more from scratch. And it also um, applies to social media. So that if you decide you want to work on that. You get a group of people at a manager or supervisory level to get together and to think about who do you want to reach? Um, what platform is potentially the best way to, um, to reach that, to get to those people? Um, what assets Do you have what is possible to do in your district? And it probably isn't possible to do any to do everything all at once, but it is possible to pick out a couple of things that are achievable that you can do well and
0: to focus on those. Hmm. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that, We've probably just scratched the surface, but all of those tips are extremely useful and actionable so that people who maybe aren't using social media yet will feel like maybe they're ready to get started. That gives us some good ideas about how we determine who our audience is and how we go about structuring a plan.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. I do want to say one other thing, and that is look around your entire staff to see if you have an untapped resource. In other words, I always encourage people to look and see whether they already have a staff a person on their staff it may not be um, a kitchen manager it may be someone who works as uh, works on the line it may be a very young person but it might be somebody who really knows how to use twitter has has really uh, you know, focused on that, used it a lot, learned a lot by being um, on something like Twitter. It might be somebody who really has the ability to take some wonderful photographs. So again, it's a uh, opportunity to build some skills and build some leadership in those areas. And you don't have to jump right in and give somebody access to your Twitter account and worry about what might be posted. But again, like anything else, people can be trained and, and can be taught leadership skills in that area. So look broadly in your program to think about who might be a great resource for social media.
0: That's a great tip. I recently had a manager volunteer to help with social media in our district and it's like a million times better now that she's involved because she has the type of personality where it's easy for her to elicit information out of people and get support from people so she's got way more contributors for content and between the two of us we're doing so much better than last year. It's pretty exciting. But she wasn't on my radar at all. She just does social media for her church and has built up that skill, even though it has nothing to do with what she does during the business day. Had she not brought it to my attention, I wouldn't have known she was that strong with her social media skills. So I'm glad she volunteered. But that's a good idea to cast a wide net and to really look beyond the people that you may first consider approaching. It could be anyone, really. That's a perfect
2: example. It could be anyone, really, and they could have developed their social media skill in a whole different uh, subject matter. Um, it could be something with their church. It could be something with a mom, uh, mom's group. Social media is being used so widely
0: these days And you're, I know you're already internet famous and school nutrition and dietetic famous, but for people who don't know, where do we find you online?
2: Basically, uh, now anything that's branded with School Meals That Rock, or in the case of Twitter, School Meals Rock, because I couldn't use all the characters. um, That uh, is a channel that I'm in. Basically, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest are all places where I have a presence. Some of them, I'll be honest with you, are areas where I focus more at one point um, than another. But uh, all of those channels
0: are places where you can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: My pleasure and best of luck with the podcast. Podcast is a great way to uh, reach people. And again, it's just one of those Um, channels that's developing over time. So congratulations for using it. Thank you.
0: Dale gave us a lot to work with there. A lot of fantastic tips and resources she referenced. So those will be available in the show notes. Some of those will also be listed on the episode summary sheet. So I was taking notes the entire time. Dale has so much fantastic, immediately useful information to share. I took those down for you. So if you didn't get a chance to take notes, don't worry. As usual, the episode summary sheets are available. You just go to the website, www.schoolnutrition.com dietitian.com, subscribe, and I will get that page to you. I'm so glad you joined us for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Remember, we all grow by sharing. The only fee for this show is that you share it with others when you hear something useful. Hopefully, that will be every episode. Also, be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That really helps us out with visibility
1: nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind now you're ready for your academics focus time to handle business breakfast you don't want to miss it help your body to replenish clean food clear mind that is the vision tune in to the school nutrition dietitian